This morning, we're digging into the book of Romans. We are, we are jumping into, tell you what, you know, time's going by in the morning. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to limit the message down a little bit this morning. We're going we're gonna to dial back. We're just going to do one sentence this morning, okay? We'll just do one sentence out of Ephesians chapter 1. Now, it does happen to be the longest sentence in the Bible. It's verses, uh, chapter 1, verse 3, all the way through verse 14, but it's one sentence in the Bible. Now, there's a connection, not just with all the measuring, building, analogies, and language from the book of Nehemiah to the, the, the book or letter of the Ephesians. There's, a, there's, a, there's a, another connection between those two. And that is, in, in the book of Nehemiah, the good hand of God is upon his people. And so God is working. God is stirring them up, and God is working through them, and God is accomplishing something that they could never do, have done for themselves. And the thrust of the book of, of Nehemiah then, in the midst of the process, and then celebrating it when it's done, is look what God has done. Look what God has done <clears throat> in building a wall to build up a people. And now we turn to the book of Ephesians, and that's exactly how it starts. Look what God has done. Paul starts out, and this is, this is to a church that he has, he has spent many, much time. I, I described his, his total teaching time in, in Ephesus could have been 4,000 hours. There's nobody here in this room that I have taught for 4,000 hours in God's Word. None of you. There's nobody in this room I have taught in the last 16 years for 2,000 hours in God's Word. Paul had a lot of opportunity to, to dig deeply into the truth of God's word with these people. And when he writes to them, to put it in one letter, the essentials, what he wants this church to continue in, knowing about what God has done and how they then live in light of it. That's the book of Ephesians. This is God's letter, dear church. This is what I want you to know. This is what I want you to know about me for you, and this is how we walk in it. When Paul starts this letter, he can't help himself. You know how sometimes you are so excited in prayer, like when, you, like when, as Nate described, you're praying about the process of the next steps in the building campaign and for God to grant us favor, and you're just getting so excited about that as you pray for it that your prayer just goes on and on and on? This is like that. This is a prayer of praise where, where, God, where, where Paul is saying, Oh, God is so good. Thank you, God, for all of this that you've done. And he just goes on and on in it. It's, it's a Trinitarian praise. He, 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 he gives thanks to, to God the Father. He gives thanks to the Son. He gives thanks to the Spirit for, for God three in one. Did we sing that in songs? One of the reasons we sang that is because here in Ephesians chapter 1, perhaps more than anywhere else, you see the fullness of all of God, the triune Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, all intimately, intrinsically, irrevocably involved in our salvation, in God's saving work in the lives of humanity. And so we're going to jump in this morning, and yet, um, while this focus is so much on what God has done for us, that, that brings one problem for, for us as Americans, because we are a pragmatic people, aren't we? We are pragmatic people that want to know, what can we do? Well, sometimes uh, you get the impression from the book of Ephesians, especially this opening chapter, or very little, actually. We, are, we were in desperate, helpless strait that we needed God to do for us. 
in the last couple of years, there's been a lot of going on in the world stage, like COVID in Ukraine, that has reminded us of our weakness, reminded us of our vulnerabilities, remind us, reminded us of our powerlessness to really prevent the evil on the earth from happening. Well, we can't even prevent the, the evil that continues to spring up even within us, can we? We can't stop it. God is changing. God is working. God is transforming. And there is our hope. In this, in this, um, in this first message in Ephesians, it's a message that's going to speak so highly and so clearly of what God has done for us, his working in our salvation, seemingly leaving out, well, what is it that I need to do, laying that to the side and just focusing on, look what God has done. That that creates its own tension in Ephesians chapter 1. That so you're, you're going to be thinking, yeah, but what about humanity's free will? What about the fact that we need to be, believe in Jesus in order to be saved? You do need to believe in Jesus Christ in order to be saved. There's been no other name given under heaven among men whereby you must be saved. John 3.16 says, whoever believes on the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. Absolutely. And yet Paul doesn't open with that. Paul opens with everything that God has done for you apart from you in order to bring you to his salvation. It's a surprising twist that creates some tension for us. I, I actually don't like the whole, the whole free will term at all because I don't think we're nearly as free as we think we are. We have an illusion of the freedom of our will, but really our will as natural humanity is bound in sin. We are bound in sin and rebellion that we cannot free ourselves from. So in terms of a free will choosing of God, because of the rebellion that is worked in me, I will choose away from God. I will not freely choose God. So free will is not a good, a good um, framework to start from, but human responsibility is not a bad term. There is a responsibility. There is a response that we make in light of God's working. And that's what we'll get to, but most of the chapter, or, or, or the section I'm going to be speaking on this morning, most of this section is going to be all about what God has done for those who know themselves to be Christians, know themselves to be believers in Jesus Christ as their Savior. And if you're here this morning, you're not sure if that's where you are or not, well, there's a, there's a, a part that we'll be speaking together at the end. But right now, hear from God's Word what He says that He has done for those who believe in Jesus, for those who are Christians. And then we'll, we'll see what we do with it from there. I'm going to jump in, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to read sections at a time, and there's going to be some tension that you're going to have, the tension between my part, but, but God has done all of this, and, and let's just, I might not resolve all of that tension for you today. In fact, I don't want to take it away. I don't want to give you the answers to that. What I instead want to do is move from tension to trust. Can I trust God in ways in areas where I do not understand all that God is doing. I don't necessarily understand how it fits together, but can I trust him? That's the answer, that I, or that's the question, rather, that I want to put before us today. Well, let's jump in. In verse 3, first of all, in verses 3 through 6 of chapter 1, only the Father 
can choose to adopt. Now that's a loaded statement. That I, I, I start right off with God's choosing because Paul does, but also there is this image of adoption that is something like adoption as we're aware of, but it's actually built on the, the historical Roman adoption, which is slightly different than adoption as we think of it. And so we'll unpack that a little bit. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Hope, God be praised. God be honored and glorified because of what he has done for us, how he has favored us in Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. First of all, spiritual blessing. That we are material beings, but we are also immaterial. We have body, we also have soul and spirit. And God has not merely helped us, blessed us, favored us in our physical material body. In fact, this material must put on immaterial. This, this corruptible must put on, rather, I, I should say not immaterial, but this corruptible material body must put on an incorruptible body. This, this um, mortal must put on immortality. That there's something intrinsically flawed about my present mortal body. But I'm more than my, merely my mortal body. I have a, I have a, a, a soul and a spirit. There's a, there's a spiritual reality to me. And God has reached that high. God has blessed us with a spiritual blessing. We were made, we were created as humanity to be in relationship with him. And God has restored that. God has restored that already spiritually in ways that we don't yet experience physically. But the spiritual blessing is ours already in our new right relationship with God. He has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly realms. When you see that in the heavenlies, think beyond the, the earth and this um, physical life as we know it. Think of the not the physical dimension merely, the material dimension, but a spiritual dimension. Think about the very presence where God exists and lives. Think about things that do happen in the presence of God in heavenly realms and spiritual realms where Satan would come even before the very throne of God and the scripture says he's the accuser of the brethren just as he was the accuser of Job in Job chapter 1 where there continues to be a tension between those who have allied themselves with Satan those spiritual beings and God and his angels and there, that, that, those tensions are described and played out in, in Daniel chapter 10. But there is a day coming that while God has allowed this, our, our earthly existence to be under the dominion of the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the children of disobedience, Ephesians chapter 2, there's coming a day when, when God's will will be done on earth even as it is in heaven. But he has made us right with him, not merely in an earthly existence, the way that Israel in a temple could do things of worshipful service to God. But he has blessed us and made us in right relationship with him in a heavenly realm, in his presence already. All that to say this. God has blessed us and favored us. God has done for us and restored us in ways that we cannot comprehend. We can't get it. We don't understand what all that really means. I just tried to explain it and you looked at me like, 
We don't get it. That's out of our experience. We have a hard time. We simply have to trust God for that which is out of our experience to grasp and grab hold of. God has blessed us beyond our, compre- our ability to comprehend it. So let me take that reality and just take another step into the deep end here. In what way has he blessed us in heavenly realms? Well, in that he, verse 4, chose us in Jesus before the foundation of the world. And the us is not all humanity. The us is those who are Christians, those who are the redeemed by believing in Jesus Christ as their Savior. Chosen in him before the foundation of the world. And you're going to say, well, wait, 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 wait. I didn't believe back then. I didn't believe until I remember the day I believed. Let's see, I wrote it here in the front of my Bible. I believed on. I only believed and I was only saved at a certain point. How did God choose me way back then? Chosen. Who chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now we have trouble with God's choosing or, as it's known, God's election. Well, I I tell you what, in recent years, I think we ought to have a whole lot more concern about human elections than we do have with God's election, okay? Just saying. But we recognize that God chooses, and yet that's not necessarily a problem for us. Did not God choose Abraham out of all the people on the earth at the time? God went to an idol worshiper in Babylon, and God chose Abraham to be the one in through whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. And then God chose his son Isaac over Ishmael, and Abraham didn't really understand why God would choose it that way. In fact, Abraham begged for him to do differently, and yet God did and God chose. And God chose Jacob, whom he would rename Israel, over over Esau. God chose that through Jacob and his descendants, his family, Israel, that that's how God would reveal himself, would show his, his, his ways and his purposes to the earth. God chose Israel. Now, why did God choose Israel? Probably because Israel would be faithfully devoted to God in all of their ways. That Israel would do such a great job of happily showing God, well, except for that Jonah guy. Israel would do such a great job of of showing what devout worship to God and, and showing him to the world looks like. Not at all. And yet God chose Israel. Did he make a mistake? I mean, if we're evaluating this after the fact, you know, if we're doing the post-game analysis, we would say, oh, I don't know about that Israel choice. But God knew what he was doing and still does, even when it's not understandable to us. God chose Aaron to be the high priest. Well, God chose Moses, first of all. I skipped Moses. God chose Moses to, 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 to be the one to lead people out of Egypt. He chooses Moses, and Moses doesn't even want to be chosen. Moses says, oh, gee, God, thanks, but no thanks. You know, choose somebody else, choose anybody else. How about Aaron? He'd be great for that. And, and God says, no, no, I choose you. In fact, I've chosen Aaron for something else. Aaron's going to be the first high priest. Why is Aaron going to be the high priest? Well, Aaron's really good at priestly stuff. I mean, he's got experience. He, he knows how to make a golden calf and rally the people around it. And yet God chose God chose Aaron. God chose Levi that, 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 that would be the lions that his priests came through. God chose Judah would be the one, not the old. If I was choosing one of the brothers, it would have been Joseph. Joseph's also the firstborn. He's the second firstborn. Golly, it fits the whole Adam to Jesus thing. And, and, and Joseph's a good guy. Judah, I don't know. Got some shady stuff in his past if you read Genesis. I'd go with Joseph, but 
I wasn't the one choosing. God is the one choosing. And we're going to have to trust God in his choosing. Accepting God's choosing is really a matter of will I trust God? God doesn't define for us how far we're to take this in terms of his choosing. He doesn't resolve the tension. He simply calls us to trust him, to soak in the reality that God has chosen us. Speaking of trusting God for his choosing, whose choices really should you rather trust? Should you trust God's choices or your choices? Think about that for a minute before you before you firm your answer, right? I look at my choices, and sometimes with eyes wide open, knowing that is not the thing to do, knowing that is con- contrary to my faith, knowing that is contrary to my identity, knowing that it really will not satisfy me, and yet I choose anyway. What is wrong with me? Well, don't look at me like that. What is wrong with you? I cannot trust myself to my choices. I can trust myself to God and his choosing. And without even trying to resolve the tension for you where your brain is already going there, and I know it because mine does too, what, what Paul wants us to do is soak in the reality that God has chosen you. He has chosen you to be his, and you are his because he has chosen you. And it's not because you were going to do it better than Aaron. I mean, the track record of the people of God's choosing is not so great. It's not about us. It's about him. God, just thank you. Thank you. Thank you for graciously favoring choosing me in the midst of your purposes. He chose me for a purpose. Why? What's the end game? What's the goal? What's the maturing, the growing up to? It is, it is to be holy and blameless in his presence before him, before his face. God chose you to be completely faultless and forgiven. God chose you to be with him without any shame or embarrassment or hesitancy. God chose you to be with him, fully belonging to be there. God chose you to be with him in a loving relationship forever. And so he began to move you toward that. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Oh my goodness, there's so much there. I'm just going to go on to the next verse. To the praise of his glorious grace. He does this all to his own glory. Because God did it, God gets the glory. God gets the praise as a result of one who has been so, so, so magnanimously gracious and merciful and generous, giving all of himself into the good of others so that all society would stand and applaud. You could think of somebody, a a model citizen that might do that kind of good works. And other people see it and recognize it and say, now that's a life well lived. And yet, look at all that God has done far beyond anything that 
could compare. He predestined. And I know that's a scary word as well. That's going to bother us. That's going to concern us. What do you mean? God predestined? God lays it all out. We just walk down. We just roll down the railway line the way that God has directed it. Well, you you play trains. You know they go off the track, right? As well as God lays it, you still go off the track. But but this whole predestined, it makes it feel like we're robots or are, are are we puppets on a string? Well, maybe... Maybe you could think about predestination this way. Maybe you could think about it more along the lines of a loving parent chooses to love their child. You say, no, 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 parents don't choose to love their child. All parents love their children. Really? Do you read the newspapers? Well, I hope not, but anyway. There's enough going around that you know what's, what, what happens, that there are plenty, there's plenty of parentaging going on where children are brought into lives with one or sometimes both parents that don't take any more intentional choice toward them to love them and care for him than stray animals do. It's terribly sad. And yet, and yet, a parent, a good parent, chooses to pour out their love. And I explained this to our kids once or twice when they were growing up, that I, 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 you're mine. I, I, I love you because you're mine. It's, it's, it's the point now in choosing to love you, I cannot not love you. Oh my, I, sometimes I might hate the thing you do, but I love you. And that's a done decision. God has chosen to bestow his love upon us. And loving, that parent, that loving parent will then set their, their, their child upon a, a path, on a trajectory. How many of you came to Sunday school for the first time because you chose to or because your parents chose you to? See? That, that raise, raise up a, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he'll not depart from it. And so applying that principle of wisdom out of Proverbs, parents set a course for their children, whether the kids like it or not. No, no, you're going to go to school. No, no, you're going to do your homework. You're going to do these things that lead toward maturity and responsibility because that's what's good for you in life, and I want what's good for you. They're going to give you vegetables instead of chocolate all the time because that's what's good for you. Oh, easily the, easily the pressure's on parents to give in and be friend instead of parent. To give in and give the good stuff. No, no, that, that's grandparents' job, okay? We'll do the spoiling, you do the training and discipline. That's the way it works. All right, we've got that settled. But as a loving parent, predestines, move, plans out and moves their kid along an intentional track. Maybe, maybe God's predestination is something like that. You're not robots. But the plan is with God, and his plan will always be better, better than you, and he more than your parents. I know the stuff you think you got away from. Our kids still think there's stuff that they did that we don't know about. Well, there probably is. But some of the stuff they, they think we don't know about, <laughs> we do know about. <laughs> but that's okay. God knows about it all. And yet he continues to move us on his path as his chosen ones toward his future for us. And it's out of love. He, he, he planned for us to bring us to the point of adoption. Now, Roman adoption was to continue a family name, even to preserve the family property by having an heir to pass it along to, an heir who was worthy. There were times when somebody did not have an heir to pass on their property, their standing in the community, their name too. There were times when a father realized that his own son 
was, did not have the capacity to carry on the family name and the enterprise, and he needed to find an heir who could. Sometimes that was true of the emperors. The emperor whom we meet in the New Testament, Caesar Augustus, was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. He was not Julius Caesar's natural son. He was adopted into the family of Caesar. Now, when you're adopted into Caesar's family, well, now you got a rich dad, you know, out of nowhere. I mean, your dad's got a nice pool. He's got a fat wallet full of money, right? Life's going to be good. Oh, it's much more than that. You're, you're adopted into the leadership of the country and the empire. You're in line to be the next Caesar. And, uh, well, there were some wars to fight to get that all sorted out. But, but uh, that's what C- C- Octavian, who becomes Caesar Augustus, that's what he's adopted into. And the adoption happens by the freeing of someone from their previous father's authority so that they can come under the authority of their new father in adoption. There, has to, there was a redemption in Roman, in, in, in Roman law. There was a redemption price paid. And actually, the son was redeemed three times. And on the third time, it stuck. So the son is redeemed out of the authority of a previous father and brought under the authority. And Paul's going to play out that image a little more, that we had an old identity, and now we have a new identity in Christ. And he's going to, he's going to unpack that further in chapter 4. He's going to unpack it in a family relationship in chapter 2. We didn't belong, and now we belong. And it's all rooted in that notion of adoption, that God has caused us to belong, and it was necessary for us to belong that there would be the pain of a price. And the price would be paid by God the Son, Jesus. And so we move to verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Only a father can choose to adopt, and God chose, God the Father chose to adopt you as his own. But in order to make you his own through adoption, there is the pain of a price. There's the redemption from our guilt, from our sin, from that which separates us from God. Only the Father can choose to adopt, but only Jesus can bring us back to God into relationship with him. Adoption as son requires the the removal of the separating sin, the transforming of us to the same mind, the same heart of the Father. In him we have redemption through his blood. We have forgiveness. We have forgiveness as a present reality. It's not a future prospect. It's not, I will be forgiven. I have been forgiven. I stand in a state of forgiveness. I don't know what you did this morning. I don't know what you did yesterday. But it is forgiven in Jesus Christ. We stand in a state of forgiveness. We appropriate that into our reality and our understanding and our comprehension when we confess our sins and receive his faithful and just forgiveness of our sins. But having believed in Jesus Christ and having been joined, united with him to the Father, I am forgiven. I have a state of forgiveness, a standing. That is 
in redemption through his blood. Redemption, that word there means set free through the pain of a price. There was a price to be paid for free, and let me use two examples. One of them is less perfect. I'll use that one first. Imagine there's a mobster runs a, a gambling racket, and somebody has been caught up in the hooks of it, and they've gone deeper and deeper. They've gone way over their head. They could not even sell their house to get out from under the debt that they have racked up in this gambling enterprise. One day in the middle of the night, the thugs come and grab him right out of his own house. And they take him. And they've got him somewhere. And they send word to his father to say, this is how much he owes. And he hasn't got it. And you're going to have to find it to pay it for him or we're going to kill him. The father has the resources and is able to redeem his wayward son. But that makes it sound like the redemption price of the life of Jesus is paid to the thug, the mobster, the enemy, the accuser, Satan. When our crime, our guilt is not against Satan, our guilt is against God himself. So maybe this other illustration will help. Imagine in the midst of a war, and there's, there's good and there's evil, there's right and there's wrong, and it's clear, and yet you... For some benefit to yourself, or so you thought, you chose the other side. You chose to be a rebel and a traitor against your own people, against your own heritage. And you have been arrested, and you have been tried, and you have been rightly convicted. And the sentence, the just and right sentence in this case for the cost of it all, is for you to be imprisoned for the rest of your physical life, bound without any possibility of relief, of release, or for your life to be taken in execution. And somebody comes along and says, I will pay the sentence for him. Not somebody who has cancer and is going to die in a year or two or a month or two anyway. No, somebody comes along and says, I will take it for him, not who's going to die in 50 years or even 100, but somebody who would never die, the Son of God himself, who death has no claim on him, and so he is able to freely offer then his life in death in your place. That's what it is to have redemption Set free by another paying the, the cost, redemption in Christ Jesus, which is the forgiveness of our trespasses, the forgiveness of our sin, the release from all charges, nothing hanging over you, no parole left, and this according to the riches of his grace. God did not peel off just the amount that was needed according to your sin. And if there's more sin, then you got to go back and he's going to peel off a little more. No. God just didn't say, okay, well, here's enough. This would satisfy it. God says that, he, 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 that we are forgiven according to the riches of his grace. Verse 8, which he lavished upon us. He lavished, he poured it out generously. An analogy that came to my mind last hour was, imagine the young man who is so head over heels, beyond his senses, smitten, 
that when he goes to the jeweler to buy the ring, he pays way more than he should have. He, he pays everything he's got. He lays it out for the biggest rock that he can find. Not because he doesn't care about money, but because he so cares about her. Jesus just didn't pay, well, how much will it take? No, he gave everything. God gave everything for you. He chose you to be his own, and he gave his everything in order for it to be. The death of the Son of God himself, God himself incarnate in humanity. And this not only for our forgiveness, but it was according to his purposes in Christ, verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time, uniting things, all things in him, things in heaven and things in earth. God, God took us and made us to be one with him, to belong to be him, with him, to be in his presence, to be part of his continuing work of uniting and restoring fallen creation back to himself. God in Jesus has not only forgiven you and, and gained your escape from judgment, but he has joined you into his work and his purposes. Remember when Jesus in John 15, 15, Jesus said, I no longer call you servants. Servant doesn't know what his master is doing. But I call you friends. And I have told you everything. And the Spirit will continue to reveal to you everything that I am doing. That's God's purpose for us in Christ. He's made us his own. He's made us his friends. He has made us workers together with God and ambassadors for Christ. He has joined us into not just some of the stuff God does. God has joined you and I as his chosen adopted ones into his greatest work of everything that God has ever done. And that is the redemption of lost humanity and the uniting together of all things back to himself in Christ. And he's made you and I a part of it. He's joined us into that work, into that calling. In him we obtained an inheritance, predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we would be to the praise of his glory. Our future is from God. Our inheritance is in Christ. And it's not merely an inheritance of possessions, but in a new position he's given. Like Octavian became a Caesar. You have been made a son or daughter of God. Behold what manner of love, John says later. 1 John 3, behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we would be called the sons of God, children of God, and such you are. And that doesn't seek into us, sink into us what that really means because we, we have a, a limited perspective of who we and ourselves really were in contrast to what God has done for us. And he's given us an inheritance that we haven't fully received yet. Peter talks about God, God is keeping us for an inheritance which is being kept for us in the heavenlies. And we're not there yet. We're still here at Brush Prairie. So how does that work? And how do I know it's real? And how, how do I know it'll be completed? How do I know that God's able to see through what he started? He's going to bring it to completion. Well, look at verse 13. In him you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, 
When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. The Spirit's presence, the Holy Spirit's presence in the believer is God's mark of ownership, of genuine salvation. It is a securing presence, like the seal of the king on a jar of olive oil in Old Testament Israel, that this was for the king. Lamelech. This was marked for the king. It was stamped right on the jar. Nobody else better touch it. This belongs to the king. So you belong to the king. He has sealed you with his own presence. You belong to him. God himself is the security of your future. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God himself is the earnest, the guarantee of what God has redeemed, he will fully bring to completion. I'm told it's a hot housing market. Keep thinking, boy, what would it be to sell our house? That would be great, right? Until then, we then had to buy a house. And then all of a sudden, it's a wash or it's a, it's a loss. So... Not as hot as I thought it was. But in a hot housing market, if you're in the place where you have to buy a house, one of the things a realtor will tell you is you better put down a serious, earnest payment. When you put that offer in, you want your offer to stand out above all the other offers they're going to get at the same time, you better put in a serious, earnest payment. What is the earnest payment? The earnest payment is a pledge of money that if your offer is the offer that the seller receives then this, this pledge that you have given, this earnest payment, is showing that you are an earnest buyer, that you really mean it. You're not just going to walk away from this deal. In fact, that earnest payment applies toward the cost of the house, but if you walk away from it, you lose it. So don't put down 500 bucks. Don't put down 1000 bucks if you really want your offer to be the one taken because they don't want the deal to fall through. They want to know you're going to see it through. You're going to stick it out. You're going to, you're going to do what you promised you would do. God didn't put down 500 bucks. God didn't give an earnest of his future plans and promise of $1,000. No, God didn't, God didn't even give the whole purchase price. Well, he did give the whole purchase price, but what God pledged is the guarantee to you and I that what he has promised he is going to perform, God, having nothing else greater that he could pledge, God pledged his very self by the Spirit of the living God, not only set upon you, but dwelling within you. What more could God do than to house down with you so that you and I would know that I am his and he is mine? This is what the Spirit has done for us. We now, how is it that we participate how did this become ours? There's the hint. If there's anything about something that, well, God has done all of this from beginning, from choosing before the foundation of the earth, all the way to seeing it through into eternity future, pledged by the Spirit and the presence. All of that is what God has done. But where do we do anything? Are we just not randomly plucked out of our paths and put on this train that God is rolling down the track? Well, he says... When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed it. There's our part. Doesn't John 3.16 say, as I quoted earlier, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. 
You would be asking me this morning, well, how do I know if I'm one of God's chosen? Well, have you believed? Well, no, I haven't believed. I'm still kind of waiting to see, you know, how things play out. And, well, maybe you're not one of God's chosen then. Well, I'm not one of God's chosen. You mean I can be saved? Well, sure, you can be saved. Whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. From our side of it, we don't see it all. From our side of it, we just get a glimpse. But the glimpse is God's inviting us in the midst of his choosing and predestining and securing and guaranteeing in the midst of all that God is doing, the glimpse that he's given you is, won't you believe? In fact, he chases you down. He says, won't you believe? And there is this portal. It was explained to me years ago this way. There's this portal. This is the entry into God's presence. And it says above the door, whosoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. And I say, I believe. I believe in him. And I walk through that entrance. And as I'm going through, I'm just amazed that God let me into his presence. And I look back at that portal. Is it really true? Am I really on the inside? And I look back and it says, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And you're forever trying to put those two together. I believed, but God chose. Maybe we're not meant to put it all together. Maybe we're meant to trust, to believe what God has said that he has done. When we come to this table that's before us, the bread and the cup, We come to this table, we are declaring that, yes, God, I believe. You may still have your own doubts about, well, how does this choosing and predestination and my believing, and how does all that fit together? I don't know, but I I know, what I do know is that I trust God with what he has said concerning Jesus who died for me. And why I ask you this morning, Is that true for you? Do you believe God? Do you trust God concerning Jesus who died for you, for your forgiveness, for you to be in right relationship with God both today and forever? Do you believe that? I didn't ask you, did you believe that sometime? Did you come down an aisle or get baptized in a church? I didn't ask you that. I said, do you believe that? Because I was a young man who stood before a church. Well, I was baptized at a very young age. And then I stood before a church one day and I said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. And I became a member of that church and I was not born again. I did not believe in Jesus for me and my own forgiveness, my own right standing with God. So I want to ask you today, before we take this bread and drink this cup, because this doesn't save anybody. (laughs) It's just juice and not very good bread. But what it is, is a declaration of our participation in the body of Jesus Christ, his real human life given in my place. What it is, is a declaration that his blood is the blood of the new covenant that was poured out for me for the forgiveness of my sin. Do you believe that? If you do, You are chosen in him before the foundation of the world. You are God's responsibility, and he will bring you all the way to his perfection in eternity. And though we don't understand it all, you can trust him for that. Let's pray. Father, today, right here, right now, 
in this room where we sit. Father, I, I declare to you that I believe you concerning Jesus, that you gave your Son in the fullness of God, in hum- humanity's flesh, to die in my place for my forgiveness. And I believe your promise that whoever believes trusts him for their rescue and for right relationship with you, that you give to them eternal life. And Lord, it's in believing that that I thank you for this, this bread and this cup, which are personal reminders of my individual participation in your choosing, in your adoption, in your redemption of me in Jesus. And so I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.